Welcome to Daily Airs. You are listening to a recording provided for the use of the blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. There's something new on Airs LA every day. I'm your host, Annette Bro, and every Monday, I review varying events that happen during This Week in History, brought to you from A&E Networks, The History Channel, and History.com. February 5. On this date, in motion picture history in the year 1919, United Artists is created. Hollywood heavyweights Charlie Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and D.W. Griffith joined forces to create their own film studio, which they called the United Artists Corporation. United Artists quickly gained prestige in Hollywood thanks to the success of the films of its stars, notably Chaplin's The Gold Rush in 1925, as well as the work of actors such as Buster Keaton, Rudolph Valentino, and Gloria Swanson. Chaplin directed United Artists films as well as acted in them, and Pickford concentrated on producing after she retired from acting in the 1930s. With the rise of sound during the decade, United Artists was helped by the talents and bankrolls of veteran producers like Joseph Schenck, Samuel Goldwyn, Howard Hughes, and Alexander Korda. The corporation began to struggle financially in the 1940s, however, and in 1951, the production studio was sold and United Artists became only a financing and distributing facility. By the 1950s, all of the original partners had sold their shares of the company, but UA had begun to thrive again, releasing such films as The African Queen in 1951, High Noon in 1952, Witness for the Prosecution in 1957, Some Like It Hot in 1959, The Apartment and The Magnificent Seven, both in 1960, and West Side Story in 1961. In addition, the company was responsible for the James Bond and Pink Panther film franchises. UA went public in 1957 and became a subsidiary of the Transamerica Corporation a decade later. UA Films garnered a slew of Best Picture Academy Awards over the course of the 1970s. For Midnight Cowboy in 1969, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in 1975, Rocky in 1976, and Annie Hall in 1977. Soon after that, however, five top executives left the company in a disagreement and formed the Warner Brothers-backed Orion Pictures. UA sustained an even more devastating blow in 1980 when it released the big-budget flop Heaven's Gate, directed by Michael Cimino. Two years in the making and way over budget, the film earned less than $4 million at the U.S. box office. After that debacle, UA struggled throughout the 1980s, in 1981, MGM bought the company, merging it in 1983 to become MGM UA Entertainment. In a highlight of those relatively dark years, UA did release another Best Picture winner, Rain Man, in 1988. In 1992, the French bank Credit Lyonnais acquired the corporation and changed its name back to Metro-Golden-Mayer Inc., abandoning the United Artists' name altogether. The James Bond and Pink Panther franchises were revived with varying degrees of success. MGM changed hands and was reorganized repeatedly over the next decade and a half, during which UA was repositioned 
as a boutique producer of smaller so-called art house films such as Bowling for Columbine in 2002, Hotel Arwanda in 2005, and Capote in 2006. In November of 2006, MGM gave the actor-producer Tom Cruise, star of Rain Man, and his production partner, Paula Wagner, control over the United Artists' production slate, announcing the decision was a reintroduction of the UA brand in the spirit of its founders. Cruise and Wagner whose former deal with Paramount Pictures ended amid reported acrimony earlier in 2006, released their first co-production with UA, Lions for Lambs, in 2007. Thereafter, the UA brand was subsumed into MGM and revived in 2018 as United Artists Digital Studios. February 6. On this date in history, in the year 1937, of Mice and Men is published. John Steinbeck's novella, Of Mice and Men, the story of the bond between two migrant workers, is published. He adapted the book into a three-act play, which was produced the same year. The story brought national attention to Steinbeck's work, which had started to catch on in 1935 with the publication of his first successful novel, Tortilla Flat. Steinbeck was born and raised in the Salinas Valley, where his father was a county official and his mother a former schoolteacher. A good student and president of his senior class in high school, Steinbeck attended Stanford intermittently in the early 1920s. In 1925, he moved to New York City, where he worked as a manual laborer and a journalist while writing stories and novels. His first two novels were not successful. In 1930, he married Carol Henning, the first of his three wives, and moved to Pacific Grove, California. Steinbeck's father gave the couple a house and a small income while Steinbeck continued to write. His third novel, Tortilla Flat, in 1935, was a critical and financial success, as were such subsequent books as In Dubious Battle in 1935 and Of Mice and Men in 1937 both of which offered social commentaries on injustices of various types. In 1939, Steinbeck won the Pulitzer Prize for The Grapes of Wrath, a novel tracing a fictional Oklahoma family as they lose their family farm in the Depression and move to California seeking a better life. His work after World War II, including Cannery Row and The Pearl, continued to offer social criticism, but became more sentimental. Steinbeck tried his hand at movie scripts in the 1940s, writing successful films like Forgotten Village in 1941 and Viva Zapata in 1952. He also took up the serious study of marine biology and published a nonfiction book, The Sea of Cortez, in 1941. His 1962 nonfiction book, Travels with Charlie, describes his travels across the United States in a camper truck with his poodle, Charlie. Steinbeck won the Nobel Prize in 1962 and died in New York in 1968. February 7. On this date in history, in the year 1984, a Navy captain becomes the first human to perform an untethered spacewalk. While in orbit 170 miles above Earth, Navy Captain Bruce McCandless II becomes the first human being to perform an untethered spacewalk when he exits the U.S. Space Shuttle Challenger 
and maneuvers freely using a bulky white rocket pack of his own design. McCandless orbited Earth in tangent with a shuttle at speeds greater than 17,500 miles per hour, the speed at which satellites normally orbit Earth, and flew up to 320 feet away from the Challenger. After an hour and a half testing and flying the jet-powered backpack and admiring Earth, McCandless safely re-entered the shuttle. Later that day, Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert Stewart tried out the rocket pack, which was a device regarded as an important step towards future operations to repair and service orbiting satellites and to assemble and maintain large space stations. It was the fourth orbital mission of the Space Shuttle Challenger. February 8. On this date in history, in the year 1994, Jack Nicholson smashes a windshield in an episode of Road Rage. Years later, he would pay a therapist counseling Adam Sandler in the black comedy Anger Management in 2003, but on February 8, 1994, it was the Oscar-winning actor Jack Nicholson who let his anger get out of control. In a criminal lawsuit filed against the actor, Robert Blank stated that Nicholson, then 56, approached Blank's Mercedes-Benz while he was stopped at a red light in North Hollywood. After accusing the other man of cutting him off in traffic, Nicholson used a golf club to bash the roof and windshield of Blank's car. A witness confirmed Blank's account of the incident and misdemeanor charges of assault and vandalism were filed against Nicholson. Charges were dropped after Nicholson apologized to Blank, and the two reached an undisclosed settlement, which included a reported $500,000 check from Nicholson. Nicholson later expressed regret about the incident in an interview with U.S. Magazine, calling it a shameful incident in my life. He explained that a close friend had recently died and that he had also been under a good deal of stress during the shooting of his most recent movie, The Crossing Guard. In that film, directed by Sean Penn, Nicholson played Freddie Gale, a man who vows to wreak vengeance on the drunk driver who killed his daughter. According to Nicholson, he went out of my mind after being cut off and snatched one of his golf clubs from the trunk of his car. Though press reports of the incident variously reported that the club in question had been a three or a five iron, Nicholson, who started golfing seriously after learning the game for the filming of the 1990s The Two Jakes, cleared up the issue in a 2007 interview with Golf Digest. I was on my way to the course, and in the midst of this madness, I somehow knew what I was doing, he says, because I reached into my trunk and specifically selected a club I never used on the course, my two iron. The road rage incident wasn't the last time Nicholson's volatile persona on and off the screen made news. A legendary fan of the Los Angeles Lakers professional basketball team, Nicholson has more than once been threatened with ejection from his courtside seats because he argued with or shouted at the game's referees. As BBC News reported, Nicholson was almost ejected from a Lakers playoff game against the San Antonio Spurs in May 2003 after he yelled at the game's referee for calling a third foul on Lakers star Shaquille O'Neal. The incident occurred shortly after the release of his latest movie at the time, none other than Anger Management. February 9. On this date in history in the year 1942, Daylight Saving Time is instituted. Congress pushes ahead standard time for the United States by one hour in each time zone, imposing daylight saving time, called, at the time, wartime. 
Daylight saving time, suggested by President Roosevelt, was imposed to conserve fuel and could be traced back to World War I when Congress imposed one standard time on the United States to enable the country to better utilize resources following the European model. The 1918 Standard Time Act was meant to be in effect for only seven months of the year, and it was discontinued nationally after the war. But individual states continued to turn clocks ahead one hour in spring and back one hour in fall. The World War II legislation imposed daylight saving time for the entire nation for the entire year. It was repealed on September 30, 1945, when individual states once again imposed their own standard time. It was not until 1966 that Congress passed legislation setting a standard time that permanently superseded local habits. February 10. On this date in history in the year 1996, world chess champion Garry Kasparov loses game to a computer. After three hours, world chess champion Garry Kasparov loses the first game of a six-game match against Deep Blue, an IBM computer capable of evaluating 200 million moves per second. Man was ultimately victorious over machine. However, as Kasparov betested Deep Blue in the match with three wins and two ties and took home the $400,000 prize, an estimated 6 million people worldwide followed the action on the internet. Kasparov had previously defeated Deep Thought, the prototype for Deep Blue developed by IBM researchers in 1989. But he and other chess grandmasters had, on occasion, lost to computers in games that lasted an hour or less. The February 1996 contest was significant in that it represented the first time a human and a computer had duked it out in a regulation six-game match in which each player had two hours to make 40 moves, two hours to finish the next 20 moves, and then another 60 minutes to wrap up the game. Kasparov, who was born in 1963 in Baku, Azerbaijan, became the Soviet Union's junior chess champion at age 13, and in 1985, at age 22, the youngest world champ ever when he beat legendary Soviet player Anatoly Karpov. Considered by many to be the greatest chess player in the history of the game, Kasparov was known for his swashbuckling style of play and his ability to switch tactics mid-game. In 1997, a rematch took place between Kasparov and an enhanced Deep Blue. Kasparov won the first game, the computer the second, with the next three games a draw. On May 11, 1997, Deep Blue came out on top with a surprising sixth game win and the $700,000 match prize. In 2003, Kasparov battled another computer program, Deep Junior, the match ended in a tie. Kasparov retired from professional chess in 2005. February 11. On this date in history, in the year 1805, Sacagawea gives birth to her first child. Sacagawea, the Shoshone interpreter and guide to the Lewis and Clark expedition, gives birth to her first child, Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau. Meriwether Lewis and William Clark first met the young Sacagawea while spending the winter among the Mandan tribe along the upper Missouri River, not far from the present-day Bismarck, North Dakota. 
Still only a teenager, Sacagawea was the wife of a French-Canadian fur trapper, Toussaint Charbonneau, who had purchased her from Hidatsa kidnappers the year before. The Hidatsa had taken Sacagawea from her homeland along the Continental Divide in modern-day southwestern Montana and southeastern Idaho, where she was the daughter of a prominent Shoshone chief. Viewing such captives as little more than enslaved workers, the Hidatsa were happy to sell Sacagawea and another woman to Charbonneau, who used them as laborers, porters, and sexual companions. That winter, Lewis and Clark hired Charbonneau as an interpreter for their projected expedition to the Pacific and back, provided he agreed to bring along his young wife. Lewis and Clark knew they would have to obtain horses from the Shoshone to cross the Continental Divide, and Sacagawea's services as an interpreter could prove invaluable. Charbonneau agreed, and she became the only woman to join the Corps of Discovery. Two months before the expedition was to depart, Lewis and Clark found themselves with another co-traveler, who later proved useful in an unexpected way. On this day in 1805, Sacagawea went into labor. Lewis, who would often act as the expedition's doctor in the months to come, was called on for the first and only time during the journey to assist in a delivery. Lewis was anxious to ensure his new Shoshone interpreter was in good shape for the arduous journey to come, and he later worriedly reported her labor was tedious and the pain violent. Told that a small amount of the rattle of rattlesnake might speed the delivery, Lewis broke up a rattler tail and mixed it with water. She had not taken the mixture more than ten minutes before she brought forth, Lewis happily reported. Named Jean-Baptiste Charbonneau, the cries of the healthy young boy announced the arrival of a new member of the Corps of Discovery. No one, it seemed, contemplated leaving Sacagawea and her infant son behind. When the party set out up the Missouri in April 1805, Sacagawea carried Jean-Baptiste on her back in an Indian cradleboard, nicknamed Pomp or Pompey by Clark, who developed a strong attachment to the boy Jean-Baptiste accompanied his mother on every step of her epic journey to the Pacific and back. Mother and son both were invaluable to the expedition. As hoped, Sacagawea's services as a translator played a pivotal role in securing horses from the Shoshone. Jean-Baptiste's presence also proved unexpectedly useful by helping to convince the Indians the party encountered that their intentions were peaceful. No war party, the Indians reasoned, would bring along a mother and infant. When the Corps of Discovery returned east in 1805, Charbonneau, Sacagawea, and Jean-Baptiste resumed the fur trading life. Little is known of Sacagawea's subsequent fate, though a fur trader claimed she died of a putrid fever in 1812 at a Missouri River trading post. True to a promise he had made to Sacagawea during the expedition, Clark paid for Jean-Baptiste's education at a St. Louis Catholic Academy and became something of an adoptive father to the boy, a bright and charismatic young man. Jean-Baptiste learned French, German, and Spanish, hunted with noblemen in the Black Forest of Germany, traveled in Africa, and returned to further explore the American West. He died in 1866 en route to the newly discovered gold fields of Montana. And that wraps up our This Week in History podcast for February 5 through February 11. If you'd like to learn more about Airs LA, including streaming audio, podcasts, and more, 
We invite you to visit and follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook social media platforms. This podcast is for the sole use of our blind and print-impaired audience. Any unauthorized use is prohibited. I'm Annette Rowe, and I'll return next week to bring you more events that happen during Next Week in History. Until then, thanks for listening.